But another key disadvantage is that social contracts are unraveling. Protests and social conflict is on the rise, societies are getting more polarized, and an increasing proportion of the population is left behind and cannot develop its full potential and contribute to society. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast entirely dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. Today we're going to explore a book, and the title is Between Fault Lines and Front Lines, and we'll do that exploration guided by the co-editors Katia Ujo and Maggie Carter, who are in the studio with us today. This book focuses on inequality, which is a social, political, and development issue of global consequences that is rising towards the top of the international agenda, and the damaging impact of inequality amounts to a global crisis, and so much so that one of the SDGs actually is entirely focused on decreasing and eliminating inequality. We'll have a lot to learn from our co-editors And before we dive in, let's say at least one thing about the book. It poses one fundamental question, which is how inequalities have reshaped structures from the local to the international level and what consequences they have on our world. And it has two dimensions. One dimension is the conceptual dimension where uh, in the book we can read the conceptual exploration of inequality and its drivers. And the other part of the book, the other dimension, is the illustration of examples from the global north and the global south of how we as humans and our societies and institutions are basically adapting to the rise of inequality. And that I found it terrifically interesting. And so before we go into exploring the book, first of all, I would like to welcome you, both of you, to our podcast and ask you maybe to introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about yourselves and your work with ANVRIS. ANVRIS is the UN Research Institute on Social Development. It's here in Geneva and it's been producing high-quality research for decades is one of the pillars of the independent research of the United Nations system. So welcome to both of you. Thanks so much, Francesco. My name is Maggie Carter, and I'm a senior research analyst uh, at UNRIST in the Transformative Social Policy Program. My background is in social anthropology, and at UNRIST I work on a number of topics, including inequality and elites, um, as well as gender and sexuality and research policy uptake. Yes, hello everybody. My name is Katja Huyo and I lead the Transformative Social Policy Program at UNRIST. And just a couple of words about the Institute as well. Uh, we are an autonomous research institute in the United Nations and we conduct research in collaboration with global networks on contemporary social development challenges. We put the social at the center of analysis. We catalyze voices from the global south in research and activities. And we promote critical thinking and alternative and pluralistic perspectives. And with all that, we try to improve evidence and analysis for policy and practice. I'm trained as an economist and political scientist and worked at universities and research institutes in Germany and Argentina before joining UNRIST. Well, thank you for that introduction. So let's get started with this exploration. So I would like to take the conversation deeper and deeper. So let's start from the generalities. I would like to know how the book came about. So of course, you both work for Anvrist. Anvrist focuses on social development um, and it catalyzes the voices of the sound. 
But can you tell us why the focus on inequality in particular? Why is this so important? Thank you, Francesco. Uh, why is inequality important? Increasing concentration of wealth and income pose a growing threat to our planet and the people who inhabit it. And at UNRIS, we just released a flagship report that shows how the multiple crises we are witnessing today, economic, political, environmental and social, are linked to rising inequalities. Crises and escalating inequalities undermine sustainable development and threaten to reverse the hard-fought progress in human development we have achieved in the past. Extreme inequality is also an issue of social justice, social cohesion and human rights, in particular when it is associated with a lack of fairness and discrimination of specific social groups. Fortunately, income and wealth inequality is now also receiving attention in the UN and the broader development community. And as we all know, in 2015, member states agreed on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And for the first time in UN history, governments committed to reduce inequalities within and between countries, SDG 10. This was a milestone after the MDGs had focused on poverty eradication without considering implications of rising income and wealth concentration at the top. So SDG 10 was a contested goal, but a highly necessary goal given the extreme rise of economic inequality in almost all parts of the world. Let me just give you a couple of figures on this. In the past three decades, the top 1% of humanity has captured nearly 20 times the amount of wealth as the bottom 50%, which has led to the incredible result that this year, 1.2% of the global adult population held almost 50% of global wealth. And this picture has only become worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. During COVID, the wealth of the 10 richest men in the world doubled while more than 120 million people fell into extreme poverty. And the number of ultra-high net worth individuals increased by 50% in the last two years. So for combating poverty and addressing its root causes, we argue that it is not enough to look at the bottom of the pyramid but at the entire income distribution, because the top and the bottom are two sides of the same coin. Some people might not be aware of the negative development impacts of extreme income and wealth concentration in the hands of the few, and our book wants to help fill that knowledge void. Unrest has already demonstrated the link between poverty and inequality early on, with an important report on the topic published in 2010. And currently, inequality is the main focus of our research strategy and runs through all our projects and research programs. So inequality is really a big issue. It's actually, I think it could be defined as one of the crises of our, of our time, together with, uh, with climate, together with migration. In, the rise of inequality is really a big thing. And the UN is trying to face it. And the system that we have in the General Assembly, even the Security Council, this conversation is becoming a global conversation. So let's stay on the book. The book stems from research um, that has been done uh, by the Institute with the participation of many international experts. Actually, the book is a collection of articles on the matter. So just, just curious, how did it come about? Well, as Katya mentioned, official development discourses have really focused on the bottom of the pyramid and tend to ignore questions of power and of politics. And this really often leads to apolitical and technocratic approaches with focus on the poor, and the role of the rich and the powerful remains unexplored. 
So given this, UNRIS um, decided to hold a call for papers conference on inequality uh, in December of 2018 to really bring the debate about power to the UN. Uh, and the conference lasted for three days um, and brought over 70 researchers from around the world to Geneva. And it really formed the foundation of a key work stream on inequalities uh, at UNRIST. Uh, and this included a think piece series, an occasional paper series, a special issue in the Journal of Critical Social Policy, several sub-projects, including one on inequalities in higher education, and this volume. And all the chapters in the book really build off of the interventions made at the conference, including presentations, roundtable discussions, and keynote speeches as well. And with the book, we've really sought to put these, um, these interventions, these ideas, into conversation to draw larger lessons about inequality, power, and counterpower as well. So now that we sort of um, know where the book comes from and how it came about, let's start exploring. So I would first start with the beginning. So let's start exploring the beginning, which is the fundamental question the book put to the reader and how it goes about answering it throughout the chapters. Yes, the book identifies a couple of important questions. For example, who and what drives inequalities? Which beliefs, policies, and institutions reproduce it? What are the consequences for economies, societies, nature, and people? And finally, what can we do about it? And the book tries to answer these questions in three sections, in four sections, actually. After opening with an introduction, which explains our analytical framework, we have an historical account of economic inequalities by Jomo Kwame Sundara and Vladimir Popov that shows how detrimental Washington consensus policies of liberalization, deregulation, and privatization have been for catch-up development in the global south. And this was actually one of the drivers of increasing inequalities between and within countries. Part two of the book then takes a look at the various ways elites and institutions of power create and perpetuate inequality. The chapters cover topics such as reproduction of inequalities and the implementation of social services. We have a case study there by Roberto Pires on Brazil. Mechanisms of intergenerational transmission of inequality, a case study on the UK by Julie McLevy and David Manley. The institutional culture of the financial industry and the way it contributes to inequality. A study on the hedge fund industry in the US by Megan Neely. Precarity in the jig economy. Taxi drivers in Nigeria, a study by Kate Mayer. And elite capture of democratic processes, exemplified by the right to the city movement in Mozambique and how it was captured by the government by the time analyzed by Fritz Nanganya. Then part three zeroes in on elite themselves, seeking to understand their motives, ideologies, perceptions, and preferences. This is really very important work, as elites are a difficult group to study and research, and there are huge knowledge gaps we have to bridge. The chapters in this section, authored by Tom Levers, Graciela Moraes, and co-authors Jeremy Seekings, include case studies on a number of countries, for example, Brazil, South Africa, and various countries in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. And they try to create a better understanding of elite interests and shed light on how elites think and strategize, for example, with regard to inequality, poverty, and social protection, or what the role of ideas is in political settlements. And there are quite some important lessons about how elites' positions differ depending on whether we look at business, political, or administrative elites. 
So elites are not a black box. They're not just, you know, homogeneous. We have important differences. And also whether their beliefs and values are linked to their societies or not, and how they align or not with popular views on poverty and inequality, which is also very interesting because sometimes they actually align with what other classes think in their countries, and sometimes they have very particular interests and perceptions. Yeah, and then part four turns it around to look at power from the bottom. So the role of collective actors and cross-class mobilization in really reining in elite power to reduce inequalities. The book explores the sort of breakdown of the 20th century social contracts and how they've unraveled and how previously existing pathways to mobilizing and accessing rights have really been closed out. And so in general, the extreme nature of inequalities and the power asymmetries that drive them have meant that people have had to adapt their strategies and tools to this new climate, which is characterized by a number of factors, shifting class structures, um, connectivity, but also decreased mobility, the changing world of work, uh, and advancing technology, shrinking role of the state, among other things. And in the final part of the book, we really look at how new forms of social movements alliances and coalitions are emerging and new ways that um, these marginalized groups um, of workers are collaborating and cooperating to push back against uh, entrenched power. So the book then concludes with an epilogue from uh, Vandana Shiva where she makes an impassioned call to decolonize knowledge, disperse power, and build inclusive democracies. So let's go a little bit Deeper. Let's dive in now. Um, and, and for example, maybe we could explore the deeper meaning of, of the title itself, Fault Lines and Front Lines. I wonder whether you're taking the readers along these lines through the chapters or in the space between them and what's there. What's, what's in this space between these lines? So yeah, the, the fault lines we refer to are these sites of fracture wrought by inequality, where we see most clearly the impact that it has on lives and who stands to lose and who stands to gain. While the front lines are the sites of struggle, where those in power come face to face with those fighting for a more just future. So by weaving these two lines together, um, we're making the point that the various social ills that we're facing aren't distinct and separate struggles but are all closely connected to the gross power imbalances that define our current moment. So part of this analysis really involves making visible those actors and the way they produce and reproduce inequality. So you have a small group of people who have a highly disproportionate control over and access to resources. Resources they're able to translate into influence, which they're using to really rewrite the rules of the game to their own benefit. It's important to note that the same power asymmetries that drive inequalities um, tend to inhibit policy and institutional change that we really need to address it. On top of that, these policies that make the rich richer also harm our planet. They lead to crisis and compromise our future objectives. So the result is this compounding cycle in which the poor and disadvantaged groups become further marginalized and suffer the worst consequences of crisis. And at the same time, the rich are gaining more power while using their wealth to largely insulate themselves from these negative effects of poverty, inequality, environmental degradation, disruption, uh, violence, and insecurity, for example. So in order to break through these adverse cycles of compounding inequalities, 
we need a better understanding of what drives inequalities in different contexts and follow these lines to, to see where they lead and where they connect, where the sites of struggle and the sites of fracture coincide and who, which actors are there at those lines uh, and, and what uh, steps they're taking, whether positive or negative, towards um, social justice. The book actually also gives quite a lot of examples of how inequality manifests itself. Um, for example, the opportunities of privileged groups, for example, white men to succeed in the hedge fund industry in the U.S. compared to persons of color or women, or how relatively stable work contracts in the transport sector in Nigeria are getting more and more precarious in the context of the so-called gig economy, or how various inequalities intersect in the case of domestic workers in Latin America, of which 90% are women, often migrant women, or women from poor rural households or racialized or indigenous backgrounds. And in terms of the impact of inequalities, we have already mentioned that inequalities drive crises and undermine development and democracy. And Maggie just said that the political and economic influence of elites can create obstacles for progressive change, as they often oppose greater market regulation or progressive tax systems, for example. But another key disadvantage is that social contracts are unraveling. Protests and social conflict is on the rise, societies are getting more polarized, and an increasing proportion of the population is left behind and cannot develop its full potential and contribute to society. A substantial part of the book is focused on illustrating examples of adaptive change. You just mentioned a few, you actually listed a few of these case studies in the UK, in the US, in Brazil and other countries. It struck me because it really shows how we as a society and institution are adapting to basically an environment that is becoming more unequal with, with time. So can you share one or two examples of how this change is happening and what it means for the world? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that is really one of the key objectives also of the book to say, even if we have a very kind of dark and dire and a little bit of pessimistic uh, image, you know, of the state of the world at this moment, there is also a lot of, you know, uh, signs and, and developments for hope. And people have actually agency and people have a lot of power resources. And even if we talk about the vulnerable and the marginalized, you know, these grassroots groups have a lot of power and agency, you know, to improve their, their life situation. So the book makes the argument that combating elite power and reducing inequalities, you know, requires reimagining paths to social change through collective mobilization and strategic alliances. And the book gives a number of examples. One interesting case study demonstrating the power of self-organization you can read in the book is about informal women workers in India and Thailand and authored by Laura Alphas. The Indian case is about a health service cooperative that provides health services to members of SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association in India. It's a trade union organizing over 2 million informally employed women based in Gujarat, India. The health cooperative the chapter talks about is owned and operated by the health workers themselves and provides basic health promotion and prevention services, while also working with the state to ensure uptake of public services by informal workers. And they do this by really accompanying the workers through a very cumbersome 
process of filling in forms, of collecting benefits, of accessing services. So actually they fulfill a public function, even if they're, you know, a cooperative, self-organized cooperative, they are actually filling a gap uh, within public service provisioning. But to do well their job, the workers of this cooperative had to acquire a deep knowledge about this very complicated public health system in India and also establish contacts with government officials that are very different in terms of status and gender and education. And that was all often a, you know, a very challenging, daunting task for them. However, you know, after having gone through this process... Uh, they feel more empowered and self-confident, and they are also recognized now by the state as a very important intermediary to reach the grassroots level. So the work of the SEVA Health Cooperative has empowered its workers, has improved access to health for the, the trade union's members, and made the public health system better. But the cooperative, you know, doesn't stop there. They're actually now considering asking the state also for financial contributions to the salaries of the health workers of the cooperative. So I think this is an excellent example, you know, to see um, how everyone can actually benefit, you know, if informal and marginalized groups organize uh, and also create uh, linkages with the public sector and with the state. Yeah, and one other really interesting example we, we often bring up um, that I find um, really illustrates these kind of new alliances quite well is, is, a, is a case by Raquel Rojas Schaefer, which looks at collective action of domestic workers um, in Paraguay and Uruguay to access basic social services. And the case is really fascinating because it shows the way that actors are forming these really unexpected alliances to push back against hierarchies and, and to claim their rights. In the two countries, domestic workers have teamed up with trade unions, housewife associations, women's groups, and international organizations, collectively motivated by objectives of challenging gender, racial, and class inequalities. So while one might not expect domestic workers and housewives, for example, to be natural allies uh, in terms of their own uh, lived experiences, in fact, in Uruguay, these groups um, have come together around a shared objective, which is having housework recognized as work and deserving of social protections. So in fact, their, their overall objectives are, are quite aligned. And the case shows that the way that when they work together, we're able to make really important gains for both of these groups. So these alliances have proved uh, incredibly useful for, for many groups. At the same time, I think what's really interesting about the chapter is that it also goes into the tensions that can arise um, in forming these alliances. And the case shows um, really uh, strong examples of how the groups have navigated these tensions to still work towards their greater objectives um, without compromising their identities and their, their own separate desires and needs. And these are just two examples. There are many in the book. One should say also from the global north. So if we could stay, before we wrap up, a question to both of you as, as researchers and editors also of this particular book. These case studies may show on the one hand that we as humans in societies and through institutions adapt to something that is inherently bad, the rise of inequalities. Do they also show to you as researchers that they respond to inequality in a way to combat it and solve 
the problem that inequality poses today. Because in adaptation, there is also an inherited, inherited sort of um, demise, if one could call it like that. I adapt to something that I cannot manage to change. Yeah. So what these stories are telling you as researchers with your experience? Yeah, I think um, the book really shows these examples from the grassroots in order to demonstrate the agency, the, the power of collective organization and of building alliances, but also of, you know, approaching the state in the case, you know, of Seva and the Indian informal workers, you know, to, to actually recognize them and their role, even if they're informal workers, as something very crucial for public services to work. So, so in a certain, to a certain extent, what we say is that they change the social contract, you know, that they change citizen and uh, state relationships. These citizens, these informal workers have been not, have not been recognized uh, in the past and they have seen as a problem and not, you know, as, as a group that actually provides services to the state. So, so they're changing also power relations. They're also changing the way, you know, these groups are integrated into society and recognized by the more powerful. But what we also say in the book that is that just, you know, acting at the grassroots levels is not enough. And I think that leads us over um, to a follow-up work that we did after this book, which is our most recent flagship report on crisis of inequality, uh, shifting power for a new ecosocial contract, and which actually looks much more into the macro drivers of inequalities and you know the high-level power asymmetries that we have to address. And so um, what we really propose is that we also have to change our, our development model. You know, we need a new development model at the global level, at national level, that builds on alternative economic approaches that has transformative social policies and a fair fiscal contract and also a reformed multilateral system. So change needs to happen at all levels, from the grassroots up through institutions at the domestic level, through the multilateral level. And I think, you know, if it all comes together and if people also build broad alliances, you know, between civil society organizations, business and governments, what, you know, previously we have often called social pacts, but now we need actually social pacts that are also ecological, so eco-social pacts, you know, that is actually the only way to address the structural drivers of inequalities. Also, Maggie, the example you brought to the table contains some of these elements of agency and also sort of recapturing spaces of power and self-determination. How would you agree to what Katya just said? Yeah, not? yeah absolutely. I, I certainly agree. And I think that one thing that these cases reveal is that there's no, there's no one-size-fits-all. There's no set... Um, roadmap for for engaging in this kind of adaptation as you called it um, these kinds of movements I think that one thing that we see is uh, creativity and the way that actors are are sort of engaging with the the tools they have at their disposal um, the actors that are that are forming parts of these alliances and the differences they have and and sort of working um, in collaboration to 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 carve out new spaces that haven't existed in other places. Um, 
And I think that one lesson it shows is that, you know, agency in any form is is incredibly uh, priceless, even in spaces where it, maybe it's not perfect, maybe um, certain trade-offs have to happen, certain um, compromises have to be made, but ultimately the steps that uh, that are taken to push back against power and to gain rights, whether they're small steps um, or, and whether they involve occasional steps in the wrong direction. Um, I think that anyone's efforts to better their lives and reclaim some level of agency in spaces of power are incredibly positive ones. And I think, yeah, these examples show, uh, again, the, this level of creativity and um, the sort of context, the importance of context uh, in, in each case. And I think what we tried to do is, is at UNRIS, not just in this book, but in general at UNRIS is, is elevate these stories to, to show that, um, not to say this is the right way or this is the wrong way, but that there is a way and there's ways to carve out spaces in, in every case and, um, and to sort of, you know, empower the voices um, that, have, that have learned from these experiences. Uh, and hopefully those voices can, can be echoed and impact other actors trying to do uh, similar things. Great. As we get closer to wrapping up this episode, I was wondering if you have both of you final thoughts that you wish the audience to really remember and take away. Yeah, actually, I think um, one key point to make is um, there's really no shortage of proven policies and strategies that work to address uh, inequality. Uh, it's really an issue of political will. And the question is how these policies get onto political agendas and under what conditions and how they're implemented. So what's really needed to reduce inequalities is a collective action that pushes back against power, as we've been talking about, and chips away at their hold over global decision-making in order to sort of push against um, the, the political will, lack of political will, and make space for, for progressive change. Um, and I think in these efforts, the role of progressive leaders and parties uh, as well as international organizations and civil society alliances are all extremely critical for this process. Yeah, maybe I, I reiterate um, a sentence that that we often that we often say actually that inequality and crisis are not an unfortunate flaw that affects our global economic system, but it's a feature. Um, we say that inequality and crisis, to a certain extent, are built in by design into our current global system. This sounds maybe quite threatening, but on the other hand, if it is built in by design, we can also change direction. And, and this is what we propose, actually. You know, we need to build on the creativity of all the different actors to make these fundamental changes and to carve out the space in their particular context. But we also have a very fundamental critique of the business-as-usual approaches you know, in, in terms of economic policies and social policies that are promoted today. So we have very concrete suggestions of how to address, you know, the structural drivers of inequality and, and make our system more resilient, more socially just, uh, more environmentally sustainable. So in that sense, I think, you know, that is the good news. There are, as Maggie said, a lot of proven policies and the need to actually embark on a new economic paradigm. Where can we find more about inequality and your work and the work that ANRIS does? 
for our audience, hyperlinks, websites, any direction we can offer. They will be also in the notes, of course, for our audience, but are a few worth mentioning here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, in fact, UNRES just launched um, our flagship report, which develops these ideas uh, in much more depth um, and discussing policies to reduce inequality um, and proposing a new eco-social contract for the 21st century based on a new alternative uh, economic paradigm, transformative social policies, and reformed multilateral system. And this report uh, launched uh, at the end of October. Uh, it's um, now available for download. There's a shorter overview, which you can read to get a, a general idea, or you can read the entire report, which goes into a lot of depth. A lot of the chapters from this book are referenced, uh, as well as many of the other um, outputs that came from the um, Call for Papers conference that I mentioned and the project on inequalities that has, uh, that has come about following that. And in addition, um, our, as Katya mentioned, our institutional strategy is built around inequalities. So all of the work from all of our programs uh, engages with that idea. And so I encourage you to check out the website um, where you can read and download a, very, a variety of different kinds of materials um, and also watch and listen podcasts and videos as well, depending on how you like to consume your media. And also follow us on social media to keep an eye on different events uh, that are going on. Yeah, and maybe just to say, of course, you can purchase the book as well. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic. There is a discount flyer that is, is uh, available on our website. And yeah, we are looking forward to, to get in touch with you and just to receive your feedback on how you find this book. Well, Katya Uyo and Maggie Carter, researchers with our fellow organization here, the United Nations Institute for Research, um, on social development. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for co-editing this book. I remind the audience the, the title is Between Fault Lines and, and Front Lines. And thank you for having guided us through the exploration of this wonderful book. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Francesca. And thanks thank for you listening. very much.